Twice a year, what we do is we kind of give, um, I don't know, a State of the Union, or this is what we're looking forward to in the fall. And I pray about these Sundays a lot because I really care that we would listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying and communicate something to you that is encouraging, that's helpful, and kind of visionary, hence the name. Uh, and as I think about all of you, those of you who I know, as I think about you as a community, I, I pray for you all the time. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit, what do, you know, what, what would be encouraging? What would you like us to, to look at on a Sunday such as this? And the first thing that went through my mind is that uh, I think we all want to be loving. I don't think there's people who are part of this church community that say, you know what, I don't want to love anybody, I don't want to love God, I want to care about anybody else, I just want to do what I want, when I want. That's not the kind of family that we are, church family that we are. I think people want to be loving. I think it's even true when we look at our city. When I think about my neighbors, the people who I know who don't know Jesus personally, I still think it's true for them. I don't think people want to be unloving. I don't think they want to live a small life where they don't care about other people. And so, what happens to us? What's the trouble? What makes it difficult to want to be loving? And I think it's simply this, that we get overwhelmed. When I think about our lives, the amount of pressure that is in our lives, I think, is absolutely incredible. You've heard us talk about anxiety in the past, where the average level of anxiety that you and I experience in our society would have put us in a psychiatric ward 50 years ago. We live under so much anxiety. We were just hearing in the news that now a, to get a basement suite in our city is now $2,500 a month. That's a shocking amount of money. And I think I could get an amen on that. So when, I, when, I, when you think about all the pressures that we're experiencing practically, whether it's financial or relational, the things that are going on in our work, we go, I want to be, I, of course I want to be loving. Why wouldn't I want to be loving? But I have so much going on. How can I give my attention to more? And then we add on top of that, the psychological stretches that we feel. It's one thing to worry about what's going on at work or if we're gonna make ends meet, but what that can do is just mess with our minds. And we feel so much stress, it doesn't feel like we're able to manage our life and keep things in check. There's so much to concern ourselves with that when somebody like me, some preacher comes up and says, you should be loving your neighbor, they go, well, yeah, but you don't know all that's going on inside of me. You don't know all that I'm wrestling with. And all I hear when you tell me to do that is one more item on a huge list of responsibilities and obligations that I have. And Christianity just feels like more work to do than the actual good news that is described as being in the Bible. So in the midst of feeling overwhelmed, 
I think that what we can often do, and this I don't need to be speaking to everybody, but I think what's often true is that to cope with that amount of anxiety, we look for resources, coping mechanisms, things that are going to help us manage all the stressors that we have going on in our life. When we look to the Bible, we see four uh, kind of groups of resources that the Bible describes that people turn to when they're wanting to find relief, wanting to get out from under all of the weight that they feel emotionally or physically. The first kind of resource that we look to is we look to other gods. Now, in Western society, I don't think that we find this to be the top choice, um, but it's still true for many of us, even here in this room, that we pray and worship other gods with the hope that if we treat them properly, give them what they want, that we're going to get some kind of benefit in return. Perhaps one of the most popular resources that we look to is other people. And we really hope that we can find a group of friends, that we can find perhaps a soulmate, a church community, but that there would be some people that would come around and help us manage the stress and difficulties that we experience in our life. I think that's pretty, uh, you know, appropriate to hope that we would find those kinds of people. I'm not sure that they ever come through the way that we hope that they would, but we still hope that they exist. One of the other things that we can do that the Bible describes is that we can look to things to help us manage our stress. There's three main things that are written about in the Bible. Wine, food, and money. You can see that in Proverbs 22, 23, rather. That we say, okay, um, maybe I can't make all this stress go away, but I can forget about it for a minute. Somebody give me a beer. Somebody give me something that's gonna that's just going to let me escape for a moment. Maybe it's a fine steak. Maybe it's just a little bit more money. If I could just, if I could just make a little bit more. I, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I don't want to be greedy, but man, I could use just a little bit more money in my bank account. And I really believe deep down that if I, if I had more money, that uh, there would be a huge weight lifted off of me. And so we can really put our confidence and hope that there's some kind of thing that is either going to help alleviate our stress or, uh, or even perhaps solve it. The final thing that's spoken about in Scripture is the idea of ideas. That uh, if I can just think in a better way and manage my emotions, and I am the best resource, and so I've got to think through what's best to do right now, and I've got to be able to manage my emotions and practice deep breathing and meditation. There's a, I listen sometimes on the radio while I drive to, uh, to News 11.30. And there's this one uh, commercial that describes the obligations that people feel, all the things that's being recommended. They say that, you know, to live a, a healthy life, you've got to be able to eat in particular kinds of ways. You've got to make sure that you do things that de-stress your life, things that you can escape into. You have to be able to manage your finances well. You have to plan for your career. You and it goes on and on. Oh, and by the way, you should also get a good eight hours sleep a day. 
And the whole idea was to say, this is impossible. All the things that are being asked of us are absolutely impossible to do. But we think that if we could just have a better plan, if we could just feel better, that somehow that's going to decrease our anxiety. Now, when we look at all of those coping resources, there's a word that gets used to describe a commitment to those kinds of things, and it's described as an addiction. Uh, we're going to be, uh, Aaron White is a, uh, a minister here in the city who works with those who live on the Lower East Side, particularly those who um, struggle with substance abuse. One of the primary ways that he helps, they call it, uh, I believe it's called a couch program or couch therapy. And he invites uh, drug addicts and alcoholics to sleep on his couch. He's got a family. They all live on the Lower East Side. And he says it's one of the most powerful ways that we can see people set free from addiction. It's fascinating. But what he says is that all of us are on the addiction continuum. Every one of us here is managing our anxiety in such a way where we become addicted to coping mechanisms, ways to handle our stress. So when you think about those things, you see that list on the screen, what's your favorite? Are you hoping that, that you can find that special someone? Are you hoping that your spouse will be that special someone? Are you, are you, is that what you're, and I, I mean, it's strange to use the word, but is that who you're addicted to? Something that you're putting all of your hope in and fixating on to see uh, relief come into your life? How are you with substance abuse? How much alcohol do you consume? How much cannabis? How much money do you think you need? How hard are you working in order to make more money so that you can find peace in your soul? What would be your favorite? When people who study addictions look at the cycle, at the addictive cycle, here's what they come up with. When we turn to these things, it begins with a quick fix. It really works. The reason why we commit ourselves to certain kinds of behaviors or substances is because there's a measure of success in it. It actually works. If you have more money in your hand, you're going to feel good for a minute. You have a new boyfriend or girlfriend, that's going to be a rush. If you, uh, if you manage to, to buy a house uh, or an apartment, you'll feel well for a minute until you have to look at your first mortgage payment. But they'll, they'll, it's like, it's working. This thing that I was hoping for to relieve my stress, it's working. And then what happens, stage number two, is reduced benefit. It's just not coming through the way that we hope it would. Having, having one ice cream was fun. I now need, you know, four more to, I love ice cream, by the way. But uh, I now need, you know, four more to get the same high that I had from having one. Or mountain biking, which, by the way, you can never be addicted to. It's the one exception. I prayed about it, and I'm pretty sure this is true. It's the one thing you can do. You'll never be addicted. 
Uh, those of you who don't know, I mountain bike, and yes, it is an issue. Um, but, uh, but you know, if I just, so that was fun, so then I should go every day. And I, but we think if, to get the same rush, we kind of have to increase the amount of usage. I need to make more money. I need to look up more pornography to get the same rush. And the third stage is a fixation. The biblical word would be to describe it as a lust. A psychological word would be to describe it as panic. That if I don't get this, I get the shakes. I need it. This is no longer optional. It's something that I rely upon. And the absence of it, now it once decreased my anxiety, the absence of it heightens my anxiety. And it consumes our time and our thoughts and our energy. Think about what that is. What do you think the most about in your life? What do you, what do you think if you, if you can just get that, that it's all going to be okay, it's all going to make sense? We're going to be fine if this happens, if I experience this. Vincent Folletti who has done lots of work um, researching addiction, says this, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. That's addiction. How much do you need? Just a little bit more. That's the famous quote of, of uh, Rockefeller. How much money do you need? Richest man in the world at that time. I just need a little bit more. How many more friends? Just a few more friends. And to meditate a little bit longer. And to look at pornography, I, I need to smoke just a little, just a little bit more. The next stage is slavery. I've used this uh, analogy. I don't know if it's true. It's just interesting. Uh, it it is. Uh, I, I've sometimes used this in the established course. But it's about how Inuit kill wolves. So let's pretend it's true. I have no idea. But the way that the story goes, at least, is the way that Inuit would kill wolves is that they would first kill a seal. And then they would take the uh, knife with which they kill the seal, dip it in the seal blood, pull it out, let it freeze. It's cold up there. Dip it in again, let it freeze until they have a popsicle of seal blood. And then they take this popsicle of seal blood, otherwise known as a knife, stick it blade up in the snow and secure it and walk away. During the heat of the day, as the sun comes out, the uh, blood begins to melt and the wolf, there's nothing, it's, it's you know, it's crack. It's, there's nothing more exciting than smelling this blood. And so they begin to lick away at the blood. It sends them into a frenzy where they've now, they're not thinking, they're just in a frenzy state of consuming this blood. And what eventually happens is now they've gotten down to the blade and it's cutting their tongue and the blood that's sending them into a frenzy is actually their own blood and they end up consuming themselves and dying. This is the story of addiction, where you feel as though you're in control of a moment and these are just resources that you're using to manage your anxiety. 
and there's a moment, and you never know when that moment is that now it's turned on you, and it now is controlling you. It's no longer a resource. It's now a master. We see this biblically in the story of Pharaoh. In Genesis, we read about the Hebrews who are in a famine in the land of Canaan. They discover that there's extra food in Egypt, and they go down through uh, Joseph, if you know the story, but they go down, and Pharaoh is actually a savior. He actually gives them food to save them. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know how the story goes, that this person who was once a savior now becomes their master and enslaves them. This is exactly what addiction is like, where we need more and more of something to the point where it's, no, it, it's, not, it's now ruling us instead of us ruling it. Where this takes us to, and this is our point, is a loveless existence. So, if I was to ask most of you here today, say, are you an addict? <laughs> I'm not an addict. I hold down a job. I, I'm not an addict. I'm in control of my use of money and other stuff. I'm in control. The sign of addiction is a loveless existence where I no longer have time, energy, or resources to concern myself with caring for others. I've got so much that I'm managing myself. The fruit of addiction is a loveless existence. So perhaps if you and I feel as though we're too overwhelmed to care for others, we might be more addicted to something than we like to think we are. Psychologist who is also a professor at Regent College, I've um, listened to his course on counseling. His name is Mark Davies. This is what he says. Addiction is an anxiety disorder. I find that to be a very helpful way of thinking. All addiction is, it's not just people who live on the Lower East Side. Addiction is the things that we use and become committed to in order to manage our anxiety. And if that's true, then maybe it's true then that we are all on an addiction continuum and there's something in our life that we give ourselves to that is controlling us more than we like to admit. That it's a way to manage our lives and emotions without faith. So again, the question needs to be asked. When you struggle with trusting in Jesus, when you feel overwhelmed with life, where do you go? Where do you go? Is it a video game? Is it going out for another run, another bike ride? Is it, uh, is it binge watching on Netflix? What's the cost of that? See, when we look at the choices that we make, we go, no, no, there's no cost. This is a solution for me. I was super anxious, and look. Sure, I spent five hours watching a stupid show, but I forgot about it for a minute. 
the cost is going to be love. It was a moment in which I didn't receive or give away the love of God. Now, what the Bible describes as the root of addiction or the root of slavery is really a, the more biblical way of thinking about it. The Bible describes the root of addiction and slavery as false worship. In Romans 1.25, it says, They exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. You and I have an inclination, a leaning toward worshipping and serving created things. I remember... Uh, in, uh, when Debbie and I were first married, um, I, I had a, a mission. And it was a very humble, you know, selfless mission. And this was to perfect my wife. Uh, you know, and there was just a couple issues, not much, but just a couple issues that I thought she could work on. I prayed about it ahead of time, so it must have been God. And uh, the things for her to work on so that she could be better, I don't know, for me. Uh, super self-absorbed, didn't see my issues at all. And I remember her trying to explain to me, I'm never going to be all that you want or need me to be. It's not going to happen. I found that, first of all, it was hard. I can't think of something in our marriage that was more healing than for her to say that that I was loading on my wife expectations that she would somehow heal my anxiety and, uh, and discomfort. Uh, it's just cruel. It's just cruel. She's just a person who's trying to love me and trying to love others. And I would load that on her. I, uh, of the marriage counseling that I do, far and away, the biggest challenge that I see in marriages are unrealistic expectations. Be God for me. And if you're not married, you're looking for a God. God bless you with that. Pray a lot. Now, uh, where we also see this is in the area of a career. Where we see there's going to be a particular career that's just going to bring uh, harmony into my heart. And there's a career out there. I just have to find it. I haven't found it yet. I'm still looking. But there's going to be a career that's just going to handle. It's, it, there's going to be, I'm going to make enough money. Uh, I'll only have to work two hours a day. And uh, it's going to have amazing benefits. And if I can find that job. And some of us spend our whole life looking for that ultimate job. That's an addiction. It's a fixation on something that is created instead of the creator. I hate to break it to you, but write this down. You're not going to find that job. It doesn't exist. Because it's impossible for creation to take the place of the creator. It's not going to happen. So what's the problem then with looking to substances which everybody thinks they have control of, or looking to people, or things, or gods. 
What's the, I mean, so we choose to do that. What's the big deal? Well, uh, again, biblically, the, the first problem is that they just can't save us. Money won't save you or me. Money has never saved anyone. A spouse has never saved anyone. A career has never saved anyone. Fame will not save you. Why won't they save you? Here's the, the sobering truth. They don't love us. They just don't love us. Money doesn't love you. You can't snuggle up with money and find comfort there. Money doesn't love you. Pornography doesn't love you. Alcohol does not love you. Let's go more down. Your boss doesn't love you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Your boss doesn't love you. It's a contract. You do stuff for them, and they're going to give you money. They don't love you. Your career doesn't love you. It can't. It's just a career. Yeah, that's right. Jonathan, in the first service, he says, do you love me? Because, you know, anyways, I said I had mixed motives. Uh, um, but here's a sobering one. Your spouse can't love you enough. Your spouse can't love you enough. I, you know, I'm older. I don't see marriages improving. I don't see it. Um, my parents, there was no marriage courses. I had never heard of a marriage course growing up. They never read a book. My dad had a grade nine education. Yeah, I think grade nine, yeah. Never read a book. They loved each other. Their expectations, super realistic. <laughs> you know, they looked at the other person, they go, it's what we're working with. <laughs> like that was about as deep as it went in their marriage. It's just one of those, you know? It's, it's what we got. It's what we got. And they loved each other deeply, but they weren't God's. This, to me, is fascinating. That what if, what would ease our anxiety is not a well-controlled world, it's being faithfully and purely loved by the living God. I was just reading another book on money the other day, um, and it's a great book by a guy named Paul Stevens. He used to be a prof, maybe he still is at Regent. And um, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, it's gone. Uh, 
None of these things can replace the love of God. And it's what God longs to give to us is a pure, unadulterated, innocent love. And I believe that it grieves his heart as we chase after everything else except trust in him. And I remember what Paul Stephen says. And if you're a Christian, you know this. But he says, what we trust in uh, for our financial needs is not our employer or our skill set. We trust in God to meet our needs. And that sets you free. If you and I trust in the economy, oh, we should be freaking out right now. <laughs> if we trust in our prime minister, God bless him, we should be freaking out right now. If you trust in your skill set, we'll have a little talk later. You and I aren't that great. We trust in God to meet our needs and to care for us and to watch out for us. And I can testify before you that he has been faithful. I've been following him for 50 years. He's a faithful God and he cares for his children. And he's where our hope lies. So where then is freedom? If all these things can never sufficiently love us or love us at all, they mostly use us the way we're trying to use them. Where is our freedom? Well, we've already said it. It's to trust in the one who loves us well. To trust in the one who loves us well. I love this idea that God is a poor business person. He makes horrible deals. He says, I'll make you a deal. I'll die for you if you turn your heart towards me and trust me. I'll die for you. I'll give you everything, and all that I ask is that you'd let yourself be, your, be my son or daughter. He's not good at business deals. He always gets the short end of the stick. It's why his love is so reliable and so good and so safe. So here's what we're going to be doing uh, all fall long. I mentioned this guy named Aaron White. I read his book. Um, in the spring, and it's a book on addictions. It's called Recovery. It's an excellent book. Here's what he's done. So you're familiar with the 12-step program. We're going to be, hopefully, many of you will go through. Uh, the, I don't know if you go through it. You live in it. 12-step uh, uh, program. Well, what he's done is taken those ideas and discovered that the Beatitudes, which is what Jesus wrote about in Matthew chapter 5, it's one of the most powerful portions of Scripture. What we're going to be doing is spending, is spending at least 10 or 11 weeks, somewhere in there, going through each one of the Beatitudes and looking at how those Beatitudes actually reflect the 12 steps and how they're the road to freedom. I just think what God wants to do this fall is not load us down with a, with a more detailed to-do list but to actually pay for us, pave a way for us to understand what freedom truly looks like. And freedom looks like the ability to freely receive and freely give love. 
And my prayer for us as a community is that the vision that we would have for this church would not be a burden to you, but would be life and freedom. And the freedom of God is experienced in freely receiving and freely giving. That's the goal that I'm praying for all of us in this fall. The issue of addictions, the issue of anxiety is tremendously complex, and we're not pretending that all of, of our problems are going to go away after a sermon series. But I do believe that God wants us to look at our coping mechanisms, realize how they're not delivering the way that we hoped or thought that they would, and to find life and freedom in the words of Jesus. So this is what you're being invited into. We're going to be starting next week. And I, am, I, am, I can hardly wait to walk through this with you because I really do believe that it's going to be good news. But as you and I know, good news typically begins with bad news. And the bad news is admitting that we're addicts, admitting that we've churned to things that have let us down and consumed us. And the reason why we struggle isn't just because of the physical difficulties that we have, it's because of the things that we're churning to to find relief, and all they do is enslave us more. The picture that I had was Pharaoh uh, promising to take care of the Hebrews and saying, then I want you to make more bricks with less straw. This is not the good news. It's not the Christian message. And I'm hoping that we'll find something much more life-giving as we go through this series together. So let's stand up. We're going to be worshiping God. I'm not going to make a funny face because I don't know how many songs to do. But um, we're going to uh, worship, which is our only way out of bondage. Father, I thank you that you are not just Lord, your Savior. I thank you that you don't use us, that we don't engage in a business contract with you where you want stuff from us and we want things from you. You love us as a safe and good father. And so I pray for my friends today that you would, in these next number of months, really our whole life, but for sure in these next number of months, that you would send us on a journey to understand freedom. Freedom being defined as the ability to freely receive and freely give. Father, I pray that as we look back on the fall years from now, we would say that is a season in which I understood what freedom really looks like. And so I ask that you would do what you need to do in our hearts to make us aware of our false gods and our false lovers and that you would give us the courage to humble ourselves and to choose you.